the book of Matthew, chapter 26, and we're going to read from verse 30 until verse 56. So we're going to have a little more lengthy reading than we normally do. Uh, But this is a narrative, which I always feel like is a little easier to be attentive to when it's a narrative and it's this long of a reading. And so Matthew 26, looking in verse 30, and obviously you know as we're getting to the end of the Gospels that we're dealing with the time period just preceding Jesus' death and resurrection. And so uh, this is the night of his betrayal. And... We're going to read verse 30 to 56. It says this. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, Yet will I never be offended. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, their hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and saith, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot excuse me, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief? 
with swords and staves for to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. That'll conclude our reading. I appreciate your forbearance and the amount of time it took to do our reading this this, uh, morning. But the title of our message today is Zeal or Self-Confidence? Zeal or Self-Confidence? And the particular verse, I suppose, though we're going to go through a, a large part of this text, where we draw this thought is in verse 35, where Peter says this, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. I'm always very hesitant to use personal examples because I'm afraid that they can become something they're not intended. Um, And that is that it would focus on me and not the point that's being trying to be made. And so if you'll bear with me with this, but I felt as I was praying this morning in the office and just contemplating what I might say to begin the message today, uh, this continued to come through my mind. Um, Kathleen and I were remarking on the way to church today that um, I've almost been preaching here now for nine months, and it just doesn't seem like it should have been that long already, Um, but it has been. And that took my mind back to something that happened uh, shortly after the church called me to pastor. Um, It was in November, if I remember correctly. And um, shortly after that, after I accepted the call to come to the church, uh, naturally, I guess the way that my mind works is I began to think of all the logistics. Um, Getting my family down here, finding employment down here, just all the things that have to be done logistically to make this a possibility. And as I was working one day, um, I began to look up applications locally for the school districts around here, and it just didn't seem right. It just didn't feel right um, to, to pursue that. And so I stopped the application and let a couple days pass and got back on the website and kind of began again, and, and it just didn't seem right. And, and you all know that feeling where you're doing something and you're just saying, there's something more to this. And uh, I began to pray and really take it to the Lord. Um, Lord, what, what's going on? Why is this not feeling right? And um, I felt the need to be a pastor full time. Like that's what the Lord wanted me to do. And... Of course, there's a lot of uh, things that I won't get into, but naturally your mind goes a lot of different directions. And um, the Lord brought to my mind in prayer one day something that is, I believe, relevant to the message this morning, and that was this. What if you spend as much time throwing yourself into the work of the Lord as you have into your career up to this point? or as other people do in their careers? What if you just step out on faith and every moment that you can devote to the Lord's cause, 
What if you apply yourself there? Now, I framed that as a question, but what it came to my heart as is a command. You need to do that. In my mind, as I was praying, I began to think about all the lost people in this area. I began to think about the young people at this church, particularly. And I thought, if every single one of us did that, every one of us somehow were able to quit our jobs and applied ourselves to the work of the Lord, there still would not be enough to reach the people in Bowling Green. Enough people. Now, every time since then, as I was still employed up in Indianapolis, that my mind began to have hesitation, I would go back to that prayer where the Lord told me that. And just felt the need to just have faith. Just have faith. And it was the Lord reaffirming in my heart, apply yourself to the spiritual things. Now, I set that example aside, and I want to focus on our text this morning. And I want to talk about zeal or being self-confident. There's a difference. Now, the way the Bible frames it is a zeal not according to knowledge. So there is a zeal according to knowledge, and there's a zeal that's not according to knowledge that falls, what I would say, in the lines of self-confident. Now, for just a moment, I want to emphasize something, and that is we need zeal. I think the word, because people have so often focused on the thought that we can have zeal without knowledge, that they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. That they've said, well, because you can have zeal without knowledge, let's just get rid of zeal altogether because it's often been something that you can identify a young person with. Somebody who's just been saved. Uh, I've shared this with the church before, but I remember I had a friend in high school, came to church, got saved. After he got saved, he went back to, he was the quarterback on the football team and he was going back and he was telling all of his teammates, you're going to die and go to hell. And he had no prudence. He had no, he was not tempered whatsoever. And naturally, when you're going around and saying you're going to hell and you're going to hell, it's going to drive people away. Yet at the same time, what I struggle to know how to do is the boldness, the truthfulness, the, the, the concern and love that kindled that activity, you have to maintain. But you've got to learn how to channel it appropriately. We find in the scriptures that Jesus, the Bible tells us that the zeal for his house ate him up. And think about how consuming the zeal that Christ had when he beheld his temple or his father's temple being abused, the Bible used the description language, it ate him up. And that was a prophecy from the Old Testament that was being quoted that the apostles remembered. And so part of the prophecies of Jesus 
is Jesus being prophesied to being a man full of zeal for his father's cause. Zeal is necessary. Zeal for your families, for your coworkers, zeal for this church, zeal for young people. Now, what is zeal? I'm not, I'm not giving you a formal definition this morning, but I'm going to tell you this. It's directed energy. All of us have varying levels of energy. The younger you are, you tend to have more. And as you get older, your energy is less and less. But here's what I want to say this morning. Zeal is not determined on how much energy you have. It's how you channel it. You can have, let's say in a day, you've got five hours of energy. What are you doing with that five hours of energy? How are you channeling it? I'm not just talking about energy to do housework or energy to do work in the garage. I'm saying mental energy, emotional energy, spiritual energy. How are you exercising your mind? How are you exercising your emotions and investing into things? Zeal is necessary. And if anything is going to be accomplished in the work of the Lord and for the welfare of other people, it's going to be catalyzed by zeal. It's going to move because people have zeal. Now, if you read in the book of Romans, you'll find that Paul was ate up with zeal. He had this zeal for his countrymen. Now, here's something I didn't intend to mention this morning, but I want to, I want to bring up because I think it's important. His zeal was not just directed generally. Right? One of the things that I oftentimes used to struggle with was that I would look at all the things that need to be done. This is, I was doing this just this past week in my garage. My garage has still got all the moving stuff in it and tools and boxes and things everywhere. And I step back and I look at everything and I think, where do you start? <laughs> right? I've got a little energy and I've got a little bit of time and I want to channel it. And so oftentimes what I would do is I'd get so overwhelmed with the amount of things that I'd have to do, I just wouldn't do anything at all. Because you say, there's just, there's just too much here. Well, as I've gotten older, what I've learned is this. I'm just going to go start in this small corner with this one box and try to get this one box done today. And I come out the next day and I get the second box done. And then I come out the third day and I get the next. You see, my eyes became focused on just particular things. Now, last night was the first time we parked both cars in the garage. It didn't start well all in one day. But it was dealing with one thing at a time. I think very often people begin very zealous doing things for the Lord. We come off something like a spiritual revival that what we have had. Or perhaps you have an encounter with God and God uh, infuses you with a, a zeal and a passion for a lost person or a group of people. And you want to do something and you don't know what to do. And so you go and you begin to uh, look for things to do. And you look at the, as Jesus says, you look at the field and it's white for harvest and it's massive. And there's not enough people out there working. And you say, where do I begin? You start with just one row. Just one row. Paul says, I have a burden for my countrymen. His, he begins zoned in. It was just for those Jewish people whom he probably knew. Those that he had encountered. Those that he had had personal experience with. 
His mind became focused on those people. And what he was determined to do is use all and channel all the energy and zeal and passion he had to do what God wanted him to do for them, not what he himself wanted to do for them. And that's what we might talk about for just a few minutes this morning. You see, zeal, I want to say this morning before we go on, it's essential. And in God's work for many years, it has been lacking. We must have zeal. I could get into, and I'm not going to this morning, that the heart of zeal is caring. That's at the heart of zeal. When you're zealous about getting a promotion, it's because you care about it. When you're zealous about making an investment, it's because you care. All of those things at the heart of them is that you care. And that care promotes an energy. And that energy, when channeled, can accomplish things if God is the one to channel it. This morning, as we look in our scripture reading today, we got to know a little bit of context about what's going on here. Because to really understand, you go back to the book of John, chapter 12, all the way through the book of John, it's the last week of Jesus' life. And then periodically, as we pick up in the, in the end of the Gospels, we find just these last couple days of Jesus' life. And if you can find a way to parallel them together and put them in order, it's super revealing about what's going in the heart of the disciples. You see, in this last week before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus has progressively over his ministry began facing his heart and life towards Jerusalem in preparation for his crucifixion. And so the closer that we get to Jesus' crucifixion, the more that he begins to talk about it. And he begins, the closer we get, not only to talk about it, but be more explicit in how he talks about it. From what I was able to, 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 uh, to learn or gather 11 different times in the last six days of Jesus' life, Jesus explicitly tells the disciples on the day of the Passover, the beginning of the week of unleavened bread, I am going to be arrested, betrayed, and crucified. And as he got so 11 different times, he has communicated to his disciples. So one of the things that is somewhat of a conundrum to me is how is it when Jesus is crucified and after he dies and raises again, how are they so disheartened and confused? I can understand the disheartened, but what about the confusion? Because 11 times in a week, Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. And then sometimes on one occasion, look at verse 2 of Matthew 26, he says this. You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He's two days away, he says, in two days. Somebody's going to betray me and I'm going to be, then he tells us how he's going to die. He doesn't just say he's going to die. He says, I'm going to be crucified. Here it comes to this. So where would you think that naturally the mind of his disciples would go. In my mind, if he's told me 11 times he's going to be, die and be crucified, my mind would be starting getting compelled towards the spiritual significance of what's happening. I would start asking questions. You would think, why are you going to be crucified? All these things, what are we going to do after you're crucified? But what we learn from the text is that that's not where the minds of the disciples are at. If we go back into the book of John, chapter 13, what we find is that Jesus is coming before them and it's the night of his betrayal and he's washing their feet. 
And so Peter stands up and says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And then Peter, in my estimation, is trying to one-up all the other disciples. And he says, well, not only my feet, Lord, but go ahead and do it all. He's carnally thinking. There's another account where they're talking there at the table. And Jesus has just said, one of you here is going to betray me. And then, what do they get to talking about? Well, first they ask who's going to do it. And then secondly, they say, I wonder which one of us is the greatest. This is how I look at it. One of them is saying, well, we know one of us is the worst. He just dipped the bread with, with Jesus. But which one of us will be the greatest? Which one of us set us in this exalted position with God? There are other examples that I could give this morning, but what I want to call your attention to is that here they're in the most important day and time of Jesus' life, and in truth, in all of our lives, this is the most important moments in human history, and all they're thinking about are carnal things. Now let me say something about those carnal things. All of those carnal things are in relation to religion. They're not thinking about wealth and prosperity. They're thinking about God's kingdom and where their place in God's kingdom is. They're thinking about who can be considered closest to Jesus as Peter was concerned about having his whole body washed. They're thinking about religious things, but their zeal is self-motivated. They're, they're not thinking spiritually. When Jesus 11 times tells them about his crucifixion, their minds are not comprehending the magnitude of what is taking place beyond that moment and the implications it will have on their life. One thing today, again, a negative, and we talked about this last week, negative part of our culture is everything is about us. And everything in the Bible teaches us, don't make it about us. Here, these apostles have been revealed these profound truths, and all they can think about is how they fit into this religious hierarchical structure. Here, Jesus then, if you look in verse 30, it says, And when they had sung to him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, in verse 36, if you were to turn there, you would see that they ended up getting somewhere. They got to Gethsemane. So, Best that I can tell from verse 30 to 36, they're walking. They're leaving where they took the Lord's Supper. They are walking out to the Mount of Olives. They're going to Gethsemane. And this is the conversation that Jesus brings up. Listen to what he says. Then saith Jesus unto them, all of you shall, the word in the King James is offended, but an easier meaning is, will fall away or forsake me. So let me read it like that. It says this. All of you shall fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And then Peter speaks up. So Jesus looks at his disciples. They're walking out to the, Mount of Geth the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, this night, you're all going to forsake me. But one day, I'm going to meet you in Galilee here in just a few days. Peter stands up. Ignoring what the Lord says. Not saying, God, give me strength not to do that. Lord, give me wisdom. Not asking questions about all these things, but asserting his, spirit, his own estimation of his spiritual strength. Lord, I will never forsake you. 
Listen to what he says in verse 33. Peter answered and said unto him, though all men shall, be, shall fall away because of you, yet I will never be offended. Again, Peter is focused on his superiority. All of these things could happen. All of these disciples that are walking with this will, but I will not. I am confident that I am so committed to you, that I am so zealous for your cause, I will not fall away. And then Jesus says something just stunning. So when he says, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, this night before the cock crows. Why the cock crows? When does the cock crow? In the morning, right? Crows in the morning. So he's saying, by the end of this night, three times before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me. I would think that would cause you to pause and reflect, wouldn't you? That would be humbling. I mean, how many times does the Gospels not record the amount of times that Jesus talked to his disciples and things came true? So he's talking to a man who has predicted things and has never been wrong. Who has displayed his divine person on more accounts, the Bible says in the book of John, than could ever be counted. And yet Peter, instead of causing him to hesitate, instead of listening, instead of being humbled, here's Peter's response. Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. And then notice this, they all chime in. Likewise, also said all the disciples. So he's saying, Lord, I don't care, what, I don't care how far I have to go. If they come get you, I'm going to deny you before I'd forsake you. And then it tells us in verse 36, they get to Gethsemane. So in my mind, and if you look at a map, you'll see it's not that far of a walk. So there may be an hour from one place to another. They're having this conversation, and then they get there. The very next verse. And Jesus says this. I'm going to go out here and pray. You all stay here and you wait. So he takes James and John and Peter and he takes them out a little further. And he, The Bible, the narrator speaks here. And listen to what he says. Verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. This is my opinion here. I think this is when Jesus began to take upon him the sins of the world. This is when the weight of your sins and my sins, in my estimation, begin resting upon him. He is now, just as the high priest would place their hands upon that animal and they would transfer and impute the sins of, uh, theoretically onto that animal before they would let him go, in my mind, this is when this happens. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is out and he's beginning to pray and he's laboring, God is transferring to him and imputing to him the burdens of the weights of the sins of the world. And he's noticeably sorrowful and he's very heavy in so much that the narrator, Matthew here, tells us he is, he's hurting, he's sorrowful. And then Jesus himself speaks up to Peter, James, and John and he says, I am so sorrowful even unto death. Will you wait and pray with me? And Jesus goes a stone's throw away 
And he begins to pray. And I could go away off onto that, what he prays this morning, but I'm not going to. But here's what I want to point out. Jesus goes out and prays. He's in this moment of excruciating pain and sorrow. And we find later in the book of Luke that his, his blood, his sweat became drops of blood. Never had the disciples ever seen a man so Heart, so sorrowful and heavy and weighted. Listen, if you've been around somebody who has lost a family member unexpectedly, if you've seen people in sorrow, it, it, everything about them screams a weight. And if you're like me, so often I'm at a loss of words and know what to say or what to do, and I just want to embrace them. But more than that, I want to impute to them something that would give them the strength and energy to endure the weight of their suffering. Here Jesus is suffering emotionally and spiritually more than any other man. He is weighed down. He goes out and prays. These men have been so confident. Lord, we love you so much that we would even die for you. No, everybody else will forsake you, but I will not forsake you. And Jesus in this moment of despair comes and says, friends, will you pray for me? Will you watch? I am so sorrowful I could die. He goes and prays. He comes back and they're sleeping. When I read Jesus' words this week, I read them in a way that I never had before. Verse 40, he comes back and he sees it. Put the emphasis on the word watch in the sentence. You know, when you say a sentence, depending on where you put the emphasis of the word, can change the meaning of it somewhat. Listen to this when you put the emphasis on, verse, on the word watch here. What? You could not watch with me one hour? Just a few moments ago, we were talking about dying for me. Now, you can't even stay awake and watch in moment turmoil with me? He wakes him up. We find this happens three more times. You know, that, that, that idea of three happens twice here, right? The cock crows three times. So he's gonna, excuse me, you're going to deny me thrice before the cock crows. And they fall asleep th- three times. Why three? I thought about that this week. Why, why three? Once, it could be an accident, right? Like if you think about it, you think, you know, I, I, I'll make mistakes sometimes and I'll do something on an accident. A second time, you might be able to find an excuse for something. But three times, and there's no denying it, right? Like if I lie to you once, you say, you know, maybe, maybe there's a... Re- Twice, I might have had a really good, I might be crafty, manipulative. But a third time, what would everybody do? You can't trust him. That would be for any behavior, right? To me, the moment, the, the number three indicates a completeness. Not necessarily in the biblical sense as seven is, but I'm just saying there's no denying it, right? Here, Jesus is saying to him, Peter says, I'll go and I will die for you. And Jesus says, you'll completely deny me. He goes to sleep. He says, what, will you not watch with me in this moment of despair? Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter and those disciples, what do they do? fall asleep on him. That doesn't end. That doesn't end the denial. We could continue to go on here for just a moment. These men come out and they arrest him. 
And the Bible tells us that Peter does something. He's zealous, right? So what does he do? He pours out a sword. He begins to defend Jesus. Cuts off the ear of Malchus and he's ready. He's ready to fight. Now, the humor of that is really beyond belief, right? I mean, there's this whole group of, of, of military men and one sword. One guy with a sword. What's he going to do? Obviously nothing, but here's the point I want to make. He had a lot of energy, but it was directed the wrong way. Every single time that he has this energy to do something for the Lord, it is always misplaced. It's always self-focused in some way. It's always carnally minded in some way. Jesus stops him and he says, this has to happen. This is according to the prophets. Or in other words, put down your sword. I want this to take place. And if you were spiritually minded, you would want this to take place too. Remember, there was an account just a little earlier whenever, uh, I believe it's in uh, the book of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus turns to him and he says that he was going to die. And Peter stands up and he says, Lord, never. And, and Jesus has to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God, but of men. You see, Peter, here's my point this morning, and I hope you're picking up on it. He had a ton of energy. He had a desire to channel it for the Lord's cause, but he was trying to channel it in the way that made sense to him. And what he needed was for God to take this man who was burning on fire for Christ and directed towards the people and purposes that God had foreordained. Every time that Peter was showing his energy and he was zealous, it was always getting in the way of the Lord's plans and never in the Lord's plans. And so over and over, what does he have to do? Correct him over and over. Continuously move Peter away. Continuously show Peter it's misplaced. Finally, we find after this account, what is verse 56, the very last verse that we read said, they all ran away. And we could go on, we could continue reading the book of Matthew and all the end of the Gospels that these men, these disciples that were so devoted to him, especially Peter, what do we learn? He forsook him. He did exactly what Jesus said that he wouldn't do. He goes, and there's all these people around, and they recognize him. They even go to the part where they say, the part where they say you know what, your speech gives you away, your dialect. You sound like a Galilean. You sound like a man that was walking with Jesus. And after they make that accusation, what does, Jesus, or what does Peter do? He gets so angry about it, he curses at him, denying it. And then what happens? The cock crows. And then what happens? Jesus, in the midst of this mock trial, what does he do? He turns over and he looks at Peter. And then the Bible says this. Peter went out and wept bitterly. It is amazing to me. Look at what God does. Please stay with me this morning because I feel like what I'm trying to say this morning is important. Peter goes at the top of the mountain of self-confidence, of his own spiritual strength, of his own devotion and zeal for Christ. He's, we're going we're gonna to do this. I'm going to do this. And all in one night, God takes him from that mountain peak I can't imagine a lower place for a Christian to be than where Peter was. 
You betrayed Jesus when you promised to die for him and his piercing, blood-beaten brow turns and looks at you at that moment. So low, Peter was. But I'm thankful this morning that the story continues. And this is really important. Three days pass. Jesus is crucified. He rises again. And I'm not going to read it this morning, but there's a place where Jesus, they're out, and they got fish prepared. They're sitting around the campfire. I love the informality of all of this, by the way. They're just walking to a place, and Jesus is talking very informal. They get to a place out, and it's just, it's, it's, it's intimate. It's personal. All the disciples are around there in Galilee, just as Jesus had prophesied would happen. And Jesus asks him this question. What does he ask him? Do you love me more than these? Some people say he was talking about the fish. You love me more than fishing. That's not what Jesus is talking about. All he's doing is quoting Peter. Remember, you said you love me more than these. Who? These men. And so notice what Jesus does. How many times does he ask him the question? Three times. Please hear me this morning. When we become prideful and self-confident about our own righteousness and about our own abilities or even about our own passions for the things of the Lord, God has this amazing way of doing this, what he does to Peter. We're up on our own self-confident mountaintop. He brings us low and reveals to us our desperate weakness unless we're in him unless we're dependent upon him. But notice what Jesus does. He took Peter that low, and listen what he does. He takes a knife, and he turns it a little bit. He's out there. He could have just, you know, Peter learned his lesson, right? Peter learned his lesson, but Jesus wanted him to never forget it. Why? This is the most important part of the message this morning. Why? Why did Jesus, when he's out there and he's in this deserted place and he's rose again, he sticks in the knife and he says, don't you love me more than these? And he asks him three times and he's reminding Peter of Peter's failure. But what he's reminding Peter of is when you depend upon your own strength, you will inevitably always fail. And he's turning that knife and he's saying, never forget it. Always remember That when you think that you're spiritual, when you witness and testify to somebody, when you learn something about God's word, when you're discipling your children and they're turning out to be decent, good kids who love the Lord, when you're in a Sunday school class and you can really tell that the messages and lessons are getting through and the hearts of the kids are being tender, when you're preaching the gospel and God is helping you and you're proclaiming it in such that it's affecting people's lives, whatever the work that God has people to do, When somebody is doing that and their mind begins to get lifted up, God wants to remind Peter, listen, as long as you think that's the case, I will remove myself from you and all the good you could continue to do, you're on your own and you're going to fall on your face. And he turns that knife and I believe he does it in 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 a tenderly, fatherly, loving way. Now listen, in our culture today, 
People don't parent that way, and it's a shame. To teach a kid or to teach a family, whatever, to teach somebody a lesson that, yes, they not only know that moment, you smack their hand and say, don't do something, but to discipline them in a thoughtful way where they say, you know what? I'm never doing that again. That takes wisdom from God, not from ourselves. But people think, you know, if you discipline a little too harsh, it's going to shatter their self-esteem. That's exactly what Peter, God did to Peter. He shattered his self-esteem, his self-confidence, because any sort of self-confidence will lead people to spiritual ruin. Here's what I love about this story is where it ends. It's like, it's like God said, All right, give, me, give me six weeks. Give me six weeks. What happened six weeks later? Peter, he's different, isn't he? He said, what are you talking about? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2 and read from Acts chapter 2 to Act through Acts chapter 12. And here's what you're going to learn about that man. When he walked with Jesus, he was all struggling, putting confidence in himself, trying to do things for God himself. And Jesus turns the knife on him and says, never forget it. Peter becomes a wholly different man. And now he's up in the power and demonstration of the Spirit. And now he's to the place where over and over and over, he willingly allows himself to be put in situations where he could lose his life. But he does it because no longer is it self-confidence directing his zeal. It's God's Holy Spirit saying, What does he say to him? Go to Jerusalem and wait for what? For me. Wait for me. Don't go yourself. Don't capitalize at a chance and an opportunity where you think it would be beneficial and helpful. Go and pray and wait. And that's exactly what Peter does. And God knew that in that moment, on the day of Pentecost, there was going to be things take place that would reverberate until this very day, but it required a zealous vessel of God yielding himself to God himself and saying, Lord, I have all of this passion. I have all of this zeal. I have all of this love for these people, my countrymen and Jerusalem and even these people who have betrayed Christ, but I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to channel it unless you help me. And when God saw a person whose heart not only loved him, but wanted to be guided by him, God said, I will manifest myself through your life in a way that people could not even imagine it, though it was spoken in advance I say all that why God wants to do that with us here he does if you lack zeal pray God would give you some zeal pray God would give you some fervor some passion because at the heart of it is that you care and you love other people and so if you look and you say you know what I don't think about lost people anymore I don't think about the state of my co-workers I just kind of go working and I work day after day and I look at them and I get agitated at them and I enjoy their company just like a lost person would but I never really think about where does that person stand with the Lord and what can I do to possibly help them that never crosses your mind, you need some zeal. You need some passion. You need to go back to the fire. 
Ezekiel said if he kept his mouth closed, what would happen? There was fire in his bones. He had a passion and he had determined because of all the response of everyone, nobody was listening to him. And he said, well, if nobody's listening, I'm just going to shut my mouth. And he said, when I did, it was like a fire in my bones. There was a zeal that he had. Do you have that zeal this morning? And if not, I know the source you can go to to get it back. It's the Lord and you need it. Oh, you need it. Because those fateful days when those people die is as it was in Ezekiel's time, God saying, listen, I got a message for you. You go say it. The blood's not on your hands. But if you conceal it and you hide it, the blood is on your hands. That's not temporary, you know. That's an analogy. It's a metaphor. He was talking about it spiritually, though. Imagine the eternal blood of your loved ones being upon your hands because you lacked the unction and the zeal and the passion to get up and do anything. Let us not fall into that. But let's say you have the zeal and you say, you know what, I do care about people. I care about people a lot. But I just don't know what to do. I feel awkward. You know, if I was deterred by every encounter that I had had with somebody talking to them about the Lord afterward I felt awkward about, I would never talk to anybody again. Because it outnumbers 10 to 1 the times I feel awkward talking to people about the Lord than the times that I don't. Or in other words, I always feel awkward after I talk to somebody about the Lord that doesn't know the Lord. You know that? That's part of our culture now. People have so stigmatized religion and salvation in the Bible, they don't want to hear it. So guess what? If you show love and concern for them, they're going to feel weird. They're going to react in ways that you may not anticipate. But guess what? you got to wait and say, Lord... Direct me. Direct my heart. You know what you also got to do? Zone in on a person. Ask God, Lord, I have all this zeal and passion. I know I can't spread the gospel to everybody at my school. I know I can't spread everybody the gospel to everybody on my neighborhood. I know that it's unlikely I'm going to spread the gospel to everybody in Bowling Green. It's probably not going to happen. Don't ask for everybody like that. Ask for one. Lord, give me one person. That's it. Give me the good ground. That's what I always pray when I pray. I think of the analogy of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And it says there are all these types of ground. And what I pray so often is, God, send me to the good ground. Where is somebody out there that is searching, that is needing, that is hurting, that is grasping for something that is eternal and they don't have it? God, you know where they're at. And they might be at the, the store while I'm passing by that needs a kind word to strike up a conversation. It might be a contractor that comes to my house to work. It could be any numbers of people. But Lord, direct me at one person and allow me, show me, give me the wisdom in those moments to direct all all of my zeal at that. We need it. Oh, I think uh, I, I can't help it. I, I'm long-winded this morning, and, and that's, I'm just long-winded this morning. I can't help but think of your family members. That's what I can't help but think of. You know, throughout the week, that's what I think about often. It comes to my mind. I'm sitting back here in this office, and I'm praying, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, okay. And, and I'm not going to call names out. Requests that you all make come to my mind. I think, Lord, why doesn't that kid come to church anymore? What is it? I don't, I don't know the depth of the situation. I don't know the complicated. I don't, I don't know the, the, the family problems, and I, I don't know. But why? Why does that teenager just seem checked out at church? Why does those people just, why does that family just not seem to grab a hold? You know, 
Like really grab a hold of what's right. Oh, they come, they're, you know, but they're not grabbing a hold. Why, Lord? God, what can I do to help? And then here's the next prayer I pray. What can people in this church do to help? Because I can't do it. Do you have zeal? You know, I, I've told you before, there have been a couple of people that I would credit with keeping me in church. Wasn't it for those people in my life. God using them. I have no doubt I would not be here. I mean, I just, I can't tell you. I know what happened in my life. And it's so real. Don't you want to be that in somebody's life? Like right when they were on, it could be your, no matter who it is. Right when they're on the fringes. It's as if God said, this Christian is yielding to me. I'm going to pick him up like a glove. And I'm going to use them. And I'm going to save that's what the book of James tells us is a man who, I can't remember the way it's worded, but it says something like basically a man who helps somebody come to know the Lord has covered a multitude of sins, covered a lot of sins, saved somebody from hell. Whoa. I love it when I hear the testimonies of people not lifting people up, but saying, you know, sister so-and-so in here, oh, sister Peggy did that during revival. You know, you're talking about women praying in revival. She started naming all these. I loved it. I loved it because... These particular people that just made an indelible mark on her heart. Let me ask you the question. Is your zeal enough where people could even say that about you? Let's lay aside whether it's channeled right or not. Let's just say, is there a palpable zeal about your affection for the Lord? I told you this before. Time really had an effect on me. Going through a lot of hardship as a kid. We had two bathrooms. One of our bathrooms, our toilets was broken in our house for years. And so we always used one bathroom. It was in my mom's room. Never planned it. She didn't sit and wait. She didn't sit and, you know, say, this is how I'm going to disciple Brad. I get up in the night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock, open the door to go to the restroom. And I just hear mom crying. I look over, and she was in her nightgown. She's on her knees next to her bed, and she's crying. And of all the impressionable things, even as a child, I could reason this. She's not trying to do that. Or in other words, she's not doing that for show. She could teach Sunday school for show. She could talk to us on the way home from church about the sermon for show. She could do all these things for show. She can't do that for show. Fathers, is that you? Do your kids see you unexpectedly because it's so routine? Calling out their name one by one in prayer and lifting you, them up in specific ways to the Lord? Mothers, same. Grandparents, where's the zeal? When God gets a hold and a person is yielded, it's only in God's choice what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. But listen, friends, I have a lot more confidence in that than I do on us relying upon our own strength or crossing our fingers hoping people walk through the door. You know, that's, that's the equivalent, it seems like, today 
two extremes, the right way, or let me say this, two mistakes churches make. Number one, they, they get up all this zeal and energy for things, doing things, you know, youth groups and all these festivals and whatever. They get all this energy for that. What I have learned is that usually yields nothing. Oh, it may get more people and all that you know, stuff that doesn't matter. But I'm saying connect the, the, the inflatable with spiritual maturation in a young person. You won't find it, usually, right? So on one hand, we misdirect our energy. On the other hand, here's another church's sentiment. Most churches that I've been to today, here's what it is. Please help somebody see our Facebook page and walk in. And then please help them like us enough to stay. Both are dead ends. You know what the middle ground is? Saying, Lord, give me zeal. You know what I have found is that God always answers my prayer for zeal. Always. I've never had him when I've been moments of despairing and I've said, Lord, I'm lacking it. I've never not had him infuse me with energy. And here's the second thing. Lord, help me to wait until you're ready to direct it. The few times I have seen that happen, they have been remarkable experiences. I won't go through them this morning. I could. I could go through a couple where that's exactly what happened. And I could give you names of people that were the result of it. Where God directed it. And I look back and I, I think, without any doubt, that's not me making decisions. That's not me thinking, oh, this would be a good idea to witness this way and affect people. It's not that at all. I look back and I say, wow, I am so privileged to have been a part of that. And there's no doubt in my mind that it was completely of the Lord. God, you know, the amazing thing is, God wants that to, do, to do that with all of us in here. You imagine, <clears throat> here's my honest opinion. If God started doing that with us, our church would be so consumed with spiritual things it would become overwhelming. My head would probably pop off as your pastor, to be honest with you. I wouldn't know how to handle it. What a good problem. This morning, I don't intend to say all that, believe it or not. I guess you're just getting backlogged for the last three weeks, right? I pray God would give a zeal and that it would be channeled with his wisdom and that it would yield fruit. And that is where the heart of my message is from this morning.